0: Run
1: away with me,
0: let me be your ride out of town, let me be the place that you hide, we can make our
2: lives on the road. Run away with me, Texas in the summer is cool, we'll be on the road like Jack Kerouac, looking
0: back, getting ready.
3: Away
4: with me. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, March 28th, 2021. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Encore Magazine, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select and many other places. Good morning, Peter.
1: Good morning.
4: Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at FilespotPhoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Hi. Good morning. So, we have with us not one but two guests on a special mm. Sunday morning. Kate Kerrigan and Bree Loudermilker with us. Kate writes words, and Brie writes music, as we see so often. They made their off-Broadway debut in 2006 in their adaptation of Henry and Mudge. They released their first album, Our First Mistake, which I love that title, and I laugh every time that I see it. Um, We spoke with uh, Lauren Gunderson a few uh, weeks back, and um, Brie wrote a, uh, a... a musical with Lauren that played at the Kennedy Center. and Kate and Bree have been just incredibly busy over uh, the last bunch of years. we wanted to get them on before they are too big to be on Broadway radio anymore. That's right. <laughs> That's so right. So Kate, good morning. How are you?
5: Good morning. Um, just just letting you know, I use my I use my pronouns are uh, she and her.
4: Okay, excellent. And Bree, good morning. Good morning. I'm Bree. She, her, they, them. Okay. So I was doing a little bit of uh, research on you. Some may see, say stalking, but I, <laughs> I prefer to it oh, as, no. as research. And you two go way back from outside Philadelphia.
5: Way back. Yes. Way
4: back. So tell us. <laughs> we
5: go about as far back as you can go.
4: <laughs> About as far back as you can go. And so tell us, um, it, outside Philadelphia can mean a lot of things. Where uh, you guys went to, went was it high school or grade school together or where was it?
5: Um, no, actually, uh, I grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania uh, near Scranton, and Brie grew up in the in Swath- in the Swarthmore area in Wallingford. And my dad lived in that area, and I would go down oh. and hang out at their very, very good community theater called the Players Club of Swarthmore. And my dad directed a lot of shows there and acted in a lot of shows there. And they had a program called the Young People's Theater Workshop that was housed there, um, and Bree did some. Bree was doing uh, their Saturday programs, but then also, Bree was in a production of Lost in Yonkers that my dad directed <laughs> at the Players Club mm-hmm. when uh, she was around ten, and I was about twelve, and we did not become friends, um, but we met each other then, and I became friends with um, Marcus Stevens, the kid who played um, Jay in that production. And as we got a little older, we got to know each other a bit more. And we were cast at, you know, in a young people's theater workshop production of little shop of horrors together in a summer program that they did um, where I played Audrey and Brie played Seymour. And, uh, and then from there, we, we, uh, we started to know each other as writers. Once we were in college, um, I actually, Brie was writing in high school and I, I, um, was a big fan of the music that she was writing, but um, it wasn't until college that we started to connect as writers together. We both were in New York city and um, we reached out and said, Hey, you're writing plays. And I said, yeah, here's the play I'm working on. Mm-hmm. And she said, here's the musical I'm working on. Do you want to write a musical together? And I said, yeah, sure. And then we started writing a musical because that's what you do when you're 20.
2: <laughs> yeah a <Yeah. laughs> quick pop quiz what uh musical mentions scranton pennsylvania
5: whoa oh oh um um Um! i know this it's bye, bye bye birdie say again it's bye bye birdie
2: oh it, oh it may be in that but it's uh but it's also in Finian's rainbow
5: oh that i don't know really? at all. it is in bye bye birdie i think <laughs> <laughs> oh no, that's Allentown. I'm sorry, Allentown. Allentown. State, right,
1: right. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. In London, by the way, they changed it to Pittsburgh because they knew that nobody would know where the Allentown is. Allentown. Yeah, yeah,
5: right.
3: yeah, Allentown represents. <laughs>
5: <laughs> oh, <laughs> I didn't know that about Finian's Rainbow. That's really weird, but also feels right.
2: Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, and the and the begat the song the begat.
5: Oh my god! Uh,
1: Mentioned in Tavaric too. Well, there's a lot of Scranton going around. Yeah,
4: well, you know, uh,
1: that's uh, that championship season was set too. I think
4: it's a place
5: where you it's a place you leave. It's like a a known (laughs) place that you exit from. No
4: offense, Scranton. Well, did 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 the song Allentown end up in the Billy Joel musical?
3: I uh-huh. can't remember. Yes, definitely. I remember yeah. seeing that musical. That uh-huh. was <laughs> 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 so, so weird. That feels like a dream we all had. It yeah, does. Right?
2: Yes. True.
4: So,
3: Peter, go on. <laughs> no, no, no. I wasn't. Go ahead. Oh, I thought you
4: said so. Uh, Bree, uh, I, I wanted to ask about your circuitous route in in uh, in college. Um. Yeah, now, if let's see if I have this correct here, because I, I I get things wrong. Start started at Harvard. Yeah. Said not for me. Yeah.
3: Went to Berkeley. Said
4: yeah. ah, maybe not. Ended yeah. up at NYU.
3: Yeah, that was all in about a year. <laughs> wow!
4: Wow, that's great. And so, and as you ended up at NYU, you were like. Hey, you know, I'm downtown and Kate's uptown, uh, up at Barnard. Uh, Right, Kate? You were up at Barnard? Okay. And and that's when this whole uh, swapping of the musical and the play happened. And you two got together to write The Woman Upstairs. That's That's correct.
3: Yeah. um, Something that Kate and I have come to realize is that, like, is how is how much benefit there is to having a shared aesthetic with someone and having like, you know, shared references and stuff. And like Kate and I don't quite have the baggage that we would have had if we'd been like best friends from being in like, elementary school or middle school or something but we we did see the same like community theater productions um, going back to when we were wee little babes and I do think that there's something about like being able to share references with someone and being able to share oh it's a little bit like that weird production of Edwig we saw in Philadelphia in 2001 <laughs> or like just like there's there's something to being able to have that shared. Language, but yeah, my, my route was, um, very strange. I started out thinking that I was going to do mathematics or computer science or something that my very mathy brain would have, um, taken to, I imagine. And I started interning for Jason Robert Brown remotely and then in person. I started, um, you know, communicating with a lot of New York singers and with, and with Kate and with people who I wanted to connect with. And I, You know, and I actually got a salient piece of advice from a lot of the composers I was in touch with where I said, oh, how did you like make a living when you were starting out in theater, like, how did you support yourself, like, moving to New York and writing? And they were like, oh, you have to have rich parents. Um, But, like, and I actually really appreciate the candor that a lot of folks I was talking to had of, like, oh, no, no, I didn't make a living writing musicals until I was, you know, in my later 20s, like, or, like, I'm still struggling to make that happen. And I was like, that's very strange, because, like, you're very successful to me. Um, But in my odd little brie brain, my reaction to that is, oh, then I'd better get to New York immediately and start very, very soon because it's going to take a long time. Um, And so I just kind of rushed everything. And yeah, Kate and I had, I I don't know what year it was, but we had our first show up when, when, what, I was like 1920.
5: 2004.
3: Yeah, it was really fast. Um, So yeah, um, I guess we just we just moved quickly back then.
4: That was the New York <laughs> Musical Theater Festival
3: in 2004. Yeah. The it first was the year The first of it. one. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so it, it that was really... an interesting mess. <laughs> an interesting mess? That was just then? Yeah, it was a fascinating, interesting, interesting. Wasn't that yeah. like the year of Altar Boys and stuff too? I'd like call was... it
5: a fascinating experiment.
3: Uh-huh. Fascinating a fascinating experiment. a mess. <laughs> it was a be- it was a beautiful extraordinary mess. I think that there's something really powerful about like a mess that has great beauty in it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure.
4: Now, I uh, I heard a story that uh that uh Brian uh at the time in 2004 said to Kate um uh, you need to write lyrics. Is this a true story?
5: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Brie was, is definitely the reason I am a lyricist. Um, And Mm -hmm. it came from, I started out writing, um, I started writing fiction. And I wrote my first play this summer before my senior year of college. And that happened to be the same summer that Brie reached out to me. And I, I was, I had started directing prior to that. And I ended up, devising a piece I didn't know the terminology for it but I devised a piece with a group of amazing amazing uh women uh writer actors and that experience was awesome and it changed me and then um and then from there I decided that I loved that writing process so much that I wanted to try to write a play and um and it wasn't until we were about halfway through working on the woman upstairs that Bree started really pushing me to um, look at writing lyrics because I have a background in writing fiction and writing poetry, and I am I'm a words person. <laughs> mm-hmm. And but I also have a ba- I also played the violin for 15 years, so I have a background in music and she just started sort of training me on her own. And then she encouraged me to go to the BMI um, musical theater workshop, which she had just, she had, she was a year ahead of me in. And, uh, she, she been, like helped me do my application and like pushed me through the process. Cause I don't know if I would have done it on my own because I didn't feel like that was what I was. Um, and then I got in there and I, I was a little bit of a mess. I didn't really know how to write a song at all, but, um, but I got through it and I got to the other side and over time I figured it out. And, um, I, I've become, I think, a. I think I've become a good songwriter now. Like I understand song structure in a way that I didn't initially, um, but it ended up being, it's one of my favorite things to do. Um, and it really does, it feels like I trained for it my entire life without realizing that I was doing that. Um, the fact that I spent all those years learning to how, how, how you breathe with your bow, how you play the violin. Um, and it's so similar to the way that um, the musicality of, the voice works um so i it's it's really thrilling to use all of that training um but yeah i, w- I don't know if i would have it would have ever occurred to me to go anywhere near it if um if we hadn't really pushed me
1: now um i'm always curious about uh, names and um for those who don't know ms kerrigan um Kate is not spelled like kiss me Kate. So it's K-A-I-T. Is this the actual birth name or something you've adopted?
5: It's something I adopted when I was 14 years old. I was My, my uh, given name is Kathleen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's those moments in your life where you need to transform yourself and you need mm-hmm. to sort of define who you are a bit more concretely. Sure. And sure. you come to know yourself in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, I was my mom and I moved to New York City. When I was a freshman in high school, and um, I learned a lot about myself in the years, the couple of years right before that, and sort of went through a bit of a transformation. And I wanted people to stop calling me Katie, which everyone had always called me.
3: Uh-huh. Um, oh my gosh, and my I mom, didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> did they Katie.
5: They did. Yeah, That's- everyone did.
3: That's um, including like everyone cool. you
5: knew you met me as Katie I'm sure um, Oh
3: gosh no yeah. way oh my gosh I and, totally blotted out <laughs>
5: <laughs> and my mom my mom who is amazing in that way she she looked at me and she saw a problem she was like well let's find a solution and she was reading I think she was reading some book about Hemingway at the time and Hemingway had a wife one of his wives um, was named Kate C-A-I-T which I had never seen before, but I, I now assume came from Caitlin, but, um, she was like, well, why don't you just spell it K-A-I-T and no one will call you Katie anymore. And I was like, oh, oh, can I do that? I can do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll do that. And so as, as a 15 year old moving to a new place, I changed my name to Kate, K-A-I-T. Um, and it was really scary for me to do. And then, um, and then we moved back to Scranton, Pennsylvania, uh, it's Kingston, Pennsylvania. Uh, We moved back there when I was a junior in high school. And that was terrifying going back to the place where, you know, you were one thing and then you feel like you're this different Mm. transformed thing. Um, Mm. But it was okay. Um, And I think that that really shaped me that, you know, definition of who you are and making sure that you um, are sort of stating yourself.
1: Well, wait, um, now here you are, you're moving to New York. Um, Are you excited about it? And on the other hand, when you had to move back, we disappointed that you were moving back. What were your emotions there?
5: Oh, um, I was really excited to move to New York when I was 15. I was really excited to get out of uh, my
1: situation
5: Mm -hmm. in middle school, which was a combination of family stuff and, social stuff that was just really stuff. rough. It's hard to be 14 and a girl it's really yeah, hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I had some pretty extreme situations going on in our family life. Um, so I was really, really thrilled to have a fresh start. And, um, and actually that, that summer was, um, the summer before I went to New York was the summer I became friends with all of the, the kids that um, that Brie had sort of grown up with at young people's theater workshop, but then also upper Derby summer stage. I spent the summer at my dad's house and, um, and that was also completely transformative for me. Um, and I, it was the first time I'd ever like spent real time with theater people. And, uh, we didn't really, we didn't have anything that, uh, that solid where I grew up. So having that community really changed me and, um I think it made it okay coming back to Kingston which it really did scare me but um but I refound some friendships that I'd had since I was little that are remain some of my greatest friendships uh when I went back to Kingston and um I think it was important for us to sort of return and be who we were, my mom and me, um, who were no longer the people that we were when we left. Um, and that, I think that full circle kind of helped me, but I, you know, it did lead to me going back to New York city after high school.
1: During these high school years, when you were in New York, did you avail yourself of Broadway? Did you go to shows?
5: Oh yeah. I went to tons of shows. Uh Um, and i i like i sort of tried to become an actor but i didn't know what i was doing at all i was at the professional children's school as a violinist and i was doing um a, i was doing like you know an 8 hour day on saturdays doing violin and singing and i was doing uh several hours a day um every week for um for violin lessons and singing lessons so i was very serious about both of those things. And it was sort of this, um, like the dials were switching where I was becoming more and more serious about acting and singing and less and less serious about violin that year. Um, but I had a, I had a great teacher that year. So I, I tried, um, (laughs) but, but yeah, I did a production. I I played Juliet and Romeo and Juliet at the professional children's school when I was 15.
1: Um,
5: and I, I, I wanted to go in that direction, but I, I was really, it was before the Internet was really happening. So it was really hard to find out how things happened as an outsider. And I was definitely an outsider.
1: Yeah, but how bad could you have been if they made you Juliet?
5: I think I had some talent. I just didn't have any access. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have, I didn't know how to get an agent. I didn't know how you got an audition. I was, it was really You know, I like, I would read backstage and I was confused by it. Uh Um, I didn't, I didn't really start to understand any of it until I was actually out of college.
4: So if you were a teenager now, today, Mm -hmm. 2021, would you be a TikTok star?
5: Me? No. (laughs) No? No, I don't think so. I, I didn't have, the thing I liked about acting was entering other people's worlds. It wasn't about, it was never about me, which is I think what, what made me a good writer and not a very good, ultimately not a great actor. Um, there is a certain amount of, uh, I, I like disappearing into a world as opposed to uh, coming out and being in the center of it. Um, so I think I think if, I, if if I were a teenager right now, I think it's possible that I would be, I think I'd probably be writing fanfic um, um and i think i would be writing i might i might i think i have the, i i do think I, it's possible i could become one of those internet um uh poets there's oh, a, mm-hmm. like cleo wade and there's sure. a few other ones that i follow sure. That what's rupee i don't know what her name is but um there's there's a couple people who i i look at what they're doing and i'm like oh yeah i i totally could have gone down that route and like you know made really pretty handwriting and made sure that and, and wrote these like little couplets um, and really focused on that. I could, I could see me doing that, but I was, I was way, I was way more literary.
1: All right. But uh, the unauthorized autobiography of Samantha Brown, which I saw somewhere in the seventies. Um, I don't mean <laughs> the the decade, I mean um, um, in, in some theater space, I think it was in the uh, West seventies. Um but that's that was about teenager, right? So um you dealt with that um part of uh one's existence teenage years, wasn't it?
3: Well, yeah. so a oh. bit of a surprise on that front. So actually, yeah. um, when I was when I was writing my story for the first time when I was 16, 17, I was trying to figure out who I was and dealing with some trauma in my life and trying to figure out. What to do with my very beautiful, messy, um, neurodivergent brain, and um, that was very good at math and, and very odd at some other things, and not very good at the music, weirdly that I loved so much. But I, um, I got into Harvard um, and also Brown early, despite not really having any intention of getting into places like that. I really wanted to go to university of Michigan for music, which also <laughs> had like a great theater program and stuff. And sure. um, the person who ran the, the Michigan um, music school must have like gone out of their way. I actually even knew him to gone out of their way to reject me. Um, so I was not going to go to school for music, but I got into Harvard for math and um was just very confused about a lot of things. And I started to get into my head, the idea of just like Driving off and the idea of taking a gap year and this idea of like this, this sense of possibility of like trying to start clean and what my life could be. And so I started telling my story and say what you will about the fact that that story was through the lens of a 17 year old girl sitting in her parents driveway Um a lot of my adolescence took place in cars with my sister, um, like we would turn to each other and we would say, let's go. And we would just take off driving and we would just go anywhere and we um, without knowing where we were headed. And there was something about that that um, was and has been like kind of a driving Um, focus for me. But as I started to tell my story with my best friend, um, now and then, um, same Zach Altman, um, I enlisted him because I've always just been like enlisting people around me that I look at and I'm like, you're a brilliant human. Um, and it's not enough for you to make art on your own. You have to make it with me because I want to, um, get closer to your brain. Um, and I just do that to people. I do. And Kate's right. Like I just grab people and I'm like, you have to make things with me. And so that's what I did with Zach. And then at a certain point, it was like sort of clear that Zach, who's an extraordinary performer and professional opera singer, um, was um, was someone who needed some additional support on the story. And I certainly did. And Kate came on um, and Zach left and this and the show, you know, has gone in enormous number of directions and very much like grown with Kate and I and was able to through the. Horrible, messy, wonderful, beautiful, long development process of what it takes to become a Broadway, off Broadway, or whatever musical. Um, you know, it, it grew and changed along the way. And I did too. But the, I think people often assume that the initial gestation of that piece came from Kate. And rightly so. It's an, it's an obvious assumption. Um, but actually, um, actually, that was, that was a little brief.
5: Um, and and that show started out. You're right, Peter. Uh, the first time we did something with that, we had the unbelievable cast uh, led by Celia Keenan-Bolger and Kate and uh, Sarah Chase and Michael Arden, were our three young leads. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was at the McCore, which was this like basement in the night in the '70s. And then um, and then it changed and evolved and ended up at good speed and uh then we lost our commercial producers because of i don't know what and uh and then eventually we um we remounted it and changed it drastically um because we had changed uh, so much as people um and we we changed its name to the mad ones Mm -hmm. and it was off broadway in 2017 um and we have now have a cast album a studio cast album that's really cool. It's really beautiful. I think, I think I'm allowed to say that because I did very little to make it that beautiful. Mm. Um, and there's, it's, it's really awesome. And that has had millions of listens on Spotify, which is really amazing to have a piece that took that long to get where it's gotten, still be sort of its like own little engine that could, but to have this really amazing um, relationship with its fans.
1: All right, the show you're doing with um Lauren Gunderson. Can you talk about that? Justice. Oh
5: <laughs> yeah, we could I guess so. <laughs> oh my we gosh, another,
1: how do you
3: know about that? <laughs> we uh
5: we did another show with Lauren Gunderson, but the three of us, um, called Earthrise that uh that is a kid's show um, for the Kennedy center last, last summer. Mm -hmm. And we also did an additional show with her um, called Rosie Rivera engineer and friends uh, for theater works the year before. So we've, we've now done a couple of musicals with her um, as a, a trio and we've had such a good time working with her. We're really, it's a, we're a great little band of people. We have a, we, we, she, she's not precious and smart and, rewrites like crazy. And I love that about her. She's so much fun to work with. Um, but yeah, we're working on this musical called justice. That's, um, going to be at the Arizona theater company. And, um, we are, we're in the early stages on it. Um, but it sort of was born of the pandemic and of the constraints of that, of trying to do something with a very small cast. And, uh, now, it looks like we are going to be able to do it in person, but it will still be in that first season of in-person. So it's, it's small cast, I think, will be a benefit because we're still going to all be figuring out how do we do things together and keep everyone safe.
1: Is the Arizona theater company Michael Barnard? No,
5: no, okay. no. Right. It's Sean Daniels.
1: All right. Mm-hmm.
4: And uh, Justice is Justice is uh, just three characters, right? And so, uh, and, and what did it get, did I, uh, misunderstand this? I thought that it was set to go in 2020 and got derailed by the pandemic or or was that not correct? It
5: it was created to be done in the pandemic. We were going to do it. So one of the things I love about writing with Lauren Gunderson is how quickly we all work together. Mm -hmm. Um, So each project that we've done, we've written in less than a year. Um, which is unheard of in musicals. And Um,
3: sometimes in a few weeks, like for some reason, (laughs) the, the team of Gunderson, Loudermilk and Kerrigan, um, apart from having three sets of like incredible glasses, like when you see the three of us (laughs) together, it's kind of hilarious, um apart from that like we've somehow ended up in this situation where it's like um we have this slot and we have to open in two months and like can we make this happen um I was about to say it was
5: Lauren's doing because (laughs) it does seem like the Lauren Gunderson way that like people are like Lauren you can make this happen right but that the actual the first one that the three of us did together was us um it was the same situation where they were like you can do this thing that's impossible right now right and we were like yeah, sure. We'll bring Lauren in and we'll do it. Um, so <laughs> That's yeah, so the they... trick
3: to anyone out there who's trying to do the impossible. <laughs> Just you need Lauren Gunderson. She really does True. do the impossible. <laughs>
5: um, but we we basically Sean Daniels wanted to do a musical. And actually, I think he wanted to do a play. <laughs> and Lauren said this about um, about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sandra Day O'Connor. First, it was just Sandra Day O'Connor. He wanted to do a Sandra Day O'Connor play, and she was like, "Well, I want to do a Lauren. I want to do a uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Sandra Day O'Connor musical." <laughs> and because you don't say no to Lauren, you say yes to Lauren. He
1: mm-hmm. said
5: okay, and she said, "I'm breaking Kate and Brie," and uh, and then the three of us started working on it, and we've written a bunch of the songs. Um, but then, because things got worse in Arizona. And the season got derailed more. Then we ended up um, holding it for next year, which in a lot of ways is a more oh. reasonable doing a sure. musical in a year. Sure. and B. Um, and b it'll be it'll be really nice to actually all get together in person and make the thing.
4: This Week on Broadway is being sponsored by Audible. As you probably know, Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, languages, business, motivation, and now... Podcasts. We have highlighted Audible's work a number of times on Broadway Radio, and as a listener to Broadway Radio, you know that Audible has been supporting the development of new works through their Audible Theatre initiative. So I think that the combination of Broadway Radio listeners and Audible Plus is a perfect match. With Audible Plus, you get full access to the Plus Catalog, which is filled with thousands and thousands of select originals, audiobooks, and podcasts, including ad free versions of popular shows, as well as exclusive series. Want to listen to Jake Gyllenhaal and Tom Sterridge in Seawall, A Life? Audible Plus. How about Certain Women of an Age by Margaret Trudeau? Audible Plus. And The Half-Life of Marie Curie by Lauren Gunderson, narrated by Kate Mulgrew and Francesca Faradani. Audible Plus. And there's so much more. Audible Plus connects you to a ton of content that entertains, inspires, and informs. It's easy to find just the right listen. Whether it's comedy, romance, suspense, true crime, science fiction, or fitness and wellness, you can even squeeze in a workout or guided meditation without having to go to the gym or a class. Visit audible.com slash broadwayradio or text Broadway Radio all one word, lowercase, to 500-500 to start your free 30-day trial. We'd like to thank Audible for sponsoring
1: Broadway Radio.
4: Could I uh, go back to Bree? And at age 19, you had now been Harvard-Berkeley, now NYU, and you decided uh, to throw your hat in the ring at BMI. So how how did you hear about BMI? How did you, what was your audition or your interview to get into BMI? And how did that all go for you?
3: I was like obsessively just like trying to track, like I certainly knew who like Peter Felicia was back in those days. Like I was like, just like, keeping track of everyone who was like involved with the kinds of new musicals that I loved so much and wanted to know about. I was like, Violet is the greatest musical of all time. <laughs> and like a seminal piece of art. I don't know who Janine Tesori is, but like, I need to figure out how to get to be in a room with that person, you know, like, I just need to be around that. And I was very good at figuring out how to, I have like this adorable picture of Janine and I, when I was like 18, Um, as she, as she was, like, giving me feedback on, like, my musical. And, like, I just kind of found the people. Um, so, like, I also, um, I saw this, like, production that, like, Sean Flavin, um, was, like, doing. (laughs) Um, and he was conducting it. And he was, like, really good at it. And I was, like, (laughs) and I, like, read his bio. And, like, and it, like, was talking about all these things he was a part of. So, I, like, hunted him down and was, like, can, like, I buy you coffee? Can, like, you, um, can you, like...
4: Sean is, like, uh, a very, very influential, important person in the world of Broadway, you know?
3: Right. And so this is why I say this in terms of, like, you know, at the time, Sean was a music director. yeah, And, like, Janine had written Violet. And, like, trust, like, Violet is amazing. But, it, you know, it's also, like, a small piece of what her her extraordinary body of work has become. Um, And I just had this, like, this gravity force that just drew me towards a certain sort of human where i i just asked and i mean if you start asking questions you're going to like you're going to have hear the words the bmi workshop you are you're mm-hmm. going to hear about that and um and the fact that the bmi workshop is free is like mm-hmm. an incredible thing. I mean, you just don't see professional training programs of any sort that are free and certainly not on that scale. I mean, I like you just, you, it's just unheard of. Um, so, yeah, I there was, it was also something that I think was something I could hold on to as I was like taking this step of of moving to New York and trying to start this life of going like, okay, I have an email address for this person. Like this person said I could do their copy work and like, I can apply to the BMI workshop. And like, there were these like little things that could make me go, okay, like this can sort of be the semblance of something that I stitched together.
4: So it's, uh, you're 19 years old in the BMI workshop year one. Uh, who, uh, who were your partners in year one and what kind of, uh, did you have any, um, uh, a, a genesis of a new work that, uh, that has, has grown out of, out of, uh, the BMI workshop for you?
3: No, I cratered immediately in the BMI workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, like I would say the... Like, there were people there who I gravitated towards and who, like, you know, I remember seeing, like, all the early sketches from, like, Tom Kitt of Feeling Electric, which became Next to Normal. And, like, there was something really thrilling about the work um, he was also doing with, like, Amanda Green. And obviously, like, th- th- there were people around and... Um, and Peter, um, th- th- there were there were folks around who were doing things with pop styles um, in BMI in the early 2000s that, like, really caught my ear and got my attention. Um, and I also really, really liked the instructors. Oh, my goodness. Right. My year wasn't um, the... Um, Kate, there was, like, a, a change of leadership that happened around that time, right?
5: Not for the... Not for the younger, not sorry, not for the first two-year program. The first year program is Pat Cook and Rick Fire, and I think they're still there, and they're wonderful.
3: They're incredible. Um, but then there
5: was a huge change. There was a there was a lot of different kinds of people who were coming into the advanced workshop, and the advanced workshop is a is kind of a different beast. It's not a training program anymore, um, and that and so it has a different kind of vibe to it, um, and some people. Thrive there, and it's amazing for them. And other kinds of people or kinds of projects are not as well suited to that setup. Um, and we were not as well suited to being in that advanced workshop. But um, I have a lot of respect for it. But it, it, it was not—it was not our home. Um, but I, that I, first two-year program is a wonderful program. And Rick Fryer is one of the only people who really talks about music that I've know, heard. It's it's really it's incredible. cool.
3: incredible. It's an incredible program. I was spectacularly <clears throat> not a good fit for it, I would say. <laughs> I just like, in case you can't tell from my educational resume, I, <laughs> I just like, there's something about me that just refuses to learn things until I'm ready to learn them. Um, and at the time, I just like really, really wanted to learn how freaking Violet was made. And I did not care to know how rnh musicals were made i just didn't care to know like like i i'm now like someone who's much more of an omnivore when it comes to those things um but like i also remember taking like I, t- I grew up near Swarthmore college so i took like collegiate classes at the college when i was in high school i took like music classes and stuff and i remember just like studying like opera scores and being like No. (laughs) Why am I looking at these opera scores? I don't want to look at this. I want to find the orchestral score to Sweeney Todd and study that. I don't want to study this. And, you know, it was only in like, it was only in the past, um, like when I hit my 30s that I started to be like, maybe I should look at some of these orchestral scores of Wagner. Cause you know, even though like anti-Semitic, like v- very, very good writing. <laughs> and so like, I don't know, I just was on my own clock. And so like, I was never good at assignments. My, all, I, I've never written as bad material as what I wrote when I was in the BMI workshop, just could not figure it out. Um, but but um, it was, you know, anytime you're putting a bunch of talented, creative people in the same room together, um, giving them a shared language and and creating a good space for feedback, which they definitely do, um, there there are beautiful things that come out of that. And definitely the exposure to a lot of different sorts of writers creating, um, creating different kinds of new musicals during that period of time was like really lovely. And I feel grateful that because I moved to New York when I did that I got to be around the Tom Kitts and the Bobby Lopez's during like that period of time in the early 2000s. And then I also got to kind of come up again with the like Joe Iconis's and, and the Benj and Justin's and the like, and folks like that in like the 2010s. And so like, I just feel like I got to kind of be part of like two different waves in that way, or at least like straddle two different waves of, of musical theater writing.
4: And Kate, you were at BMI at a different point than, uh, than Brie was. Yeah, I think
5: I was only a year behind Brie or maybe two years behind. Um, But uh, basically I did the first year where I, the way that it works is that you, um, you cycle through a bunch of different collaborations and sort of try on different collaborations. And I learned a lot from that process. And I am a, I am a, uh, typically very good student, um, And I love, I love being in classrooms. Um, so that, that made that a lot easier for me. Um, but, but then in my second year, in the second year, you're supposed to pick a project and pick one person that you're writing with. And at that point, I had worked with probably 10 or 12 other people. And Brie and I were really deep in our collaborations. And we had a commission to work on and we were also doing the, through Bree's work, we were already doing the um, New Dramatist, or sorry, the Dramatist Guild Fellowship, which was one of the most incredible uh, learning experiences that I think either of us ever had. Um, But so we were doing that that year. So we, I convinced them to let Bree come back and be my partner for the second year, uh, which meant that the project that we worked on there our final project for BMI was uh, Henry and Mudge, which was our off-Broadway debut. Hmm. Uh,
4: And then uh, 2005, uh, Brie, you won the Richard Rogers Award.
3: So weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um, When I met Stephen Sondheim, um, he literally told me I was misspelling my name. (laughs) 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 Like, and the, and, you know, and it's ludicrous because like, A, imagine, Having the gall to tell someone, no, no, that's not how you spell louder milk. And on the other hand, he was definitely right.
1: Well, uh, let's hear about this. Yeah, uh, <laughs> how were you spelling it, and how did he feel it should have been spelled?
3: Well, he, he, so he said, he said, like it was the first and like pretty much only thing he said to me, which was, oh, there should be an it should be a U and an umlaut. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And do you have any idea why he reached this conclusion? There was a songwriter named John D. Loudermilk. Uh, Do you know about him? Uh, Yeah.
3: And then there's also like a band called Loudermilk. Um, But and oh, and a small town mayor. Who I was fighting with at some point over the domain name, Brian uh-huh. Uh huh, uh huh. I won that battle and he lost re election. I was, I was, and am pretty good at the internet. Um, and, and I'm so sorry out there to Brian Laudermilk. Um, also, I'm like done with the name Brian Lautermilk, so you can have mm-hmm. it back. <laughs> That's
1: uh-huh. That is funny. That is funny. So you have no relation to that John D. Loudermilk who wrote a lot of pop songs in the 50s and 60s.
3: No, no. But like sometimes was actually right. Like it is like Germanic. Like it is. It, he's well, probably you were, right.
2: You were using the Americanized version of it. Yeah. Yeah. That guess That, so. would, that you, you didn't change. Someone else changed it, I guess. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. I it. So 2005, you win the Richard Rodgers Award. In 2009, yeah. Kate wins the Cleveland Award for libretto, libretto writing uh oh you know did, uh, how did uh, how did you guys feel uh, it, uh was this uh, a good reinforcement for you we, uh, was there any time that you doubted whether you should continue moving forward because it's taking so long to get your projects uh produced or you know how are you feeling about these things
3: the Richard Rodgers one was very weird for me because I won it for a musical that I started writing when I was actually even younger than that, when I was 15 um, with Marcus Stevens, who um, who Kate um, knew and who had kissed a little bit in like middle school. Sorry, Kate. <laughs> it's, it's too cute not to mention. Um, I'm so sorry, Kate. Um, but so Mar- Marcus um, had this like, wackadoo idea like sitting in some <laughs> Marcus,
5: was it's not awesome. wackadoo it's a it's a really no, great idea no, but but it's,
1: what's, it's a concept. great idea
3: but what's amazing is that marcus was similar to me in that like Marcus was also not great at like educational settings and like was like bored out of his mind in like social studies class in a high school. And like literally on like two facing pages of his high school um, textbook were like this were like this information about um, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg and about Lenny Bruce on the other page because like they're moving through that period of history pretty quickly. And Marcus was like, oh, we should make a musical about those people. And so we started working on that in high school. And then that musical that we kind of hodgepodge together if you were to please god let no one find the score if you're able to find the score you're like oh it's literally just like fragments of like candor and ebb musicals and sondheim musicals and like like and weirdly little bits of like violet because you know um (laughs) and and like and just like you know full on lifting from other people like just being like oh what if this what if this because you have this beautiful sense about you when you're, you know, 15 years old of like, Like, I can just make anything. And so, like, yeah, I would have been a TikTok person doing like really weird (laughs)
1: TikTok videos.
3: Um, But yeah, what happened is that we ended up continuing to work on it. And Marcus is an incredible theater artist. And I gradually made the score sound less like other things and more like me and any writers out there who are young and starting. Like, first off, I'm so sorry. You still probably need rich parents. Um, And, uh, (laughs) but you don't need
5: them. We don't have. Have
3: them no we don't but like boy no it like,
5: doesn't hurt
3: it, it does not hurt <laughs> if you can have them um but uh yeah um like i think there is some wisdom to saying like you know it's okay to um, start out as a mimic. It's okay to start out as someone who is, you know, listening and trying to recreate what other artists are making and looking at how something gets made and just trusting that your voice will evolve. So um, the finished thing that not finished, but like the version that won the the Rogers was um, was far was farther along that path, but we were still wee babies, um, and so I think it was very odd for me to have that work that I, I had this plan of like continuing to apply for things. And I was hoping to win the Rogers, you know, in a few years, but it, it happened really, really fast. Um, it was something we weren't really ready for with that piece. Um, and to some extent, I think Kate and I weren't really ready. Um, the woman of Sarah's got a decent amount of little attention yeah. when it happened at, at New York theater workshop and some people who wanted to continue to develop it. And we were kind of like, we're not ready for this yet. Um, we talk about like sharpening our knives because we both are like top chef um, aficionados. <laughs> um, but like we, as much as I don't think my brain has been well-suited to educational environments, there isn't, that That doesn't say that I like thought I was finished or ready um, to be a writer when I was 18, 19, 20, even 25. I don't believe that I like, wrote a song that I would consider a good song until um, we were down in that McCore basement and Kate and I kicked out Run Away With Me and Say the Word and a bunch of those songs all within the matter of a few weeks. But I, I did recognize this desire um that lynn wrote about so beautifully in in hamilton of like wanting to be in the room of wanting to be around other makers and other people who were doing something that i couldn't do yet and that i wanted to do and even better that i wanted to do with them hmm. and so kate
4: uh was the Cleveland award shocking for you as well
5: Yeah, it was incredibly shocking. It it came at a moment where uh, we were a little bit more. We were. I mean, it was two thousand nine, so we were a little further along in our careers, um, and that made it. I think a little bit more. uh, It was it was just good, (laughs) and it's also it's also a a substantial amount of money. And I was at a moment in my where I was wondering whether or not I needed to get a day job, and I had managed to not have a day job. I think since like 2006, but I had been working for um, I'd been sort of cobbling things together in a pretty major way. Um, and, you know, it didn't have health insurance, things like that. Um, and I'm very lucky that I've always been very healthy, knock on wood. Um, so I've gotten away with things like that. But uh, I, I was definitely like hand. Uh, I, w- I was definitely just surviving and having a little bit of a nest egg and being able to um, have my own apartment for the first time and be alone, uh, which is something that I really, I like being alone. I, I'm a little bit of an introvert. Um, and so having that quiet space and being able to call myself a writer in a way that I don't think I gave myself, um, the, I didn't, I don't think I let myself do that until I had that, um, Around that time, but I—I th- I was already sort of there. We were—we uh, were out of town with um, what would become the Mad Ones, um, and we were—we hadn't done—we hadn't done, done Goodspeed yet. We were at the Orange County Performing Arts Center doing a production uh, with, uh, padding urine and Jenny Barber and Nick Blameyer. And it was really, it was a really great experience. Um, and being out of town and doing that was really fun. And, um, and Brie and I did a, we did a trip up to LA and did a bunch of meetings with like DreamWorks and places like that right afterwards. So there was something, there was a little bit of a, I felt like it was sort of coalescing and it sort of made sense. Um, and it it just gave me a great deal of relief because, as Bria's mentioned, like the the economics of being a theater artist are, especially a writer, um, are absolutely they're pretty impossible. Um, so something like that kind of um, award has an enormous impact on your ability to survive and to make it through the next year or two, um, or beyond that. It's it's given me sort of some. Cushion and nest egg and solvency.
4: So uh, did that play into the ability to create Our First Mistake, which was your uh, album that released number one in the uh, iTunes singer-songwriter charts?
5: Um, that was actually more connected to our, our relationship with the internet um
4: mm-hmm.
5: we right <laughs> I love around talking about
3: it as a relationship kit <laughs> it <is. laughs> it's a long-term um, relationship yeah, we, had this,
5: we had this we've had this long-term fanship fan fan relationship um and that relationship with our fans uh basically when kickstarter happened um there was a moment where it was happening not in theater yet it was happening um everywhere else. It was happening mostly in pop music and in film. And we noticed that it was happening there. And we realized that we had the opportunity to make something. And uh, it was a little scary, but we, we, um, we asked for just $10,000. And uh, we knew that that was a reasonable amount to ask for um, from our fans and that it wouldn't take that many fans to get to spend $10,000. It would take, you know, maybe a hundred, but, or, you know, even 500, but that like we could get there. And then, uh, and within the first 24 hours, we made a thousand, we made $10,000. And so having done that, we realized we had to go a little further and me to do something a little bigger. And so in that first in that first 24 hours, we looked at what we did and we said, okay, we have to, we either have to try to finance a show or we can try to finance a second album. And we chose to finance a second album and, uh, and a tour. And the choice that we made to do that, um, was connected to, um, the fact that the majority of the people who were supporting us were not in New York city. Um, so doing a, a show in New York city didn't make a lot of sense, um, so we decided to make an, a tour, which we called You Made This Tour. And we filmed all of the concerts so that people could watch them. And then we also made an album from that called Kerrigan Lettermouth Live. And so over the course of, I think, two years total, we made two albums. And they all came from that first Kickstarter that we did, um, where we raised, uh, $35,000. And that, and that was, that was a huge discovery that we could do that, that we could galvanize our fans and that we had that relationship that we've been building for years. Um, and that that actually turned into something that could be turned into making art.
4: So, uh, I mean, we, we've heard, uh, these stories before, especially uh, more recently with "Be More Chill," where it's a tremendous amount of internet support that wasn't realized uh, in the commercial sense when they when they tried to convert it. But you were able to do that. The uh, uh, you know, as of yesterday, you had eleven million three hundred fifty-two thousand views on YouTube. Eleven million three hundred fifty-two thousand views on YouTube. Just of a collection of videos mm. that. You guys are in control of that. Doesn't take into account all the other people who have put up videos of your stuff on YouTube as well. You mentioned before you had millions of streams on Spotify, uh, and so you've you've been able to really harness uh, uh, technology to support your fans all over the world and stay in touch with them. Uh, how does this play into what you're going to do going forward?
5: What an amazing question! I uh, I don't know. Yeah, I was with you no. up until
3: that. I was with you up until that last like little clause there. Um, yeah, I feel like I know how to talk about what that relationship has been, but my gosh, like looking ahead, it, wow! Well, okay, Kate, think, tr- take a swing. I think
5: that's something that might be <laughs> worth mentioning is that um, we did we did a, a little bit of an experiment everything we've done on the internet has been an experiment. (laughs) Um, And it's, it's always these moments where we jump into a deep end and we say, well, what if we try this and what will happen if we try this? Um, And so the things that we've done are include that Kickstarter campaign and um, this other like very small project that we did for a year called the freshman experiment. But was in some ways, I don't know, a little bit of a disaster, a a beautiful mess, but in other Uh ways was this unbelievable incubator for ideas that the two of us have grown. Um, And it led to some of our favorite songs that we've written. And it built, it, it also taught us how to bring our Like our fan community into our writing process, Um, and then this past during this pandemic, we um, this fall we did a project called the Mad Ones Lab, Mm -hmm. where we reached out to um, hundreds of uh, artists who are not tradition like who are not people who have made it in the theater world, um, and asked them to come experiment with us in making uh, shorts, digital shorts of the mad ones. So basically you cut the show into 20 parts, I think. And we assigned people to different sections and they made this beautiful, messy, sometimes glorious, these little, um, digital theatrical pieces based on these sections of the show. And there's some of it that's, uh, stop, stop motion. And there's some of it that's, you know, green screened and some of it's animated and it's really, really cool. And we took everything that we, we, we built all of these um, panels and talks and we supported them for a month. We gave them all the tracks, all the information that they would need from us. We let them have access to the script. We let let them have access to all of the, all of the underlying musical materials so that they could, they could build from that and make their own thing and uh it was sh- it was incredible um and we and then we built uh an engine with our friend tom who is uh, an incredible uh he's he's he does like back end interface Uh, I am terrible at talking about this stuff, but, um, he makes things on the internet that I don't understand, but we built with him this thing called the mad ones engine, where you can go and you can watch, uh, thousands of different versions of the show. Uh, you watch the whole show straight through, but it's all these different sort of collaged versions put together based on all of what other people have made and it can keep going. Um, so the next phase for us will be to try to get more people to make more things based on what we, on this model that we created. So we're, I, I don't know what the answer is in terms of how that relationship grows or changes because we never know. But, uh, I think what we do know is that we're always trying to find ways to engage with not just fans, but artists and trusting that those fans are the people who become artists um, because they are. That's that that quote um, from Ira Glass about the, the the distance between your taste and your ability um, being the thing that you're trying to bridge. You're trying to get to the place where the thing you make uh, becomes as wonderful as what your taste wants it to be. Um, and he says it so beautifully and I'm, I'm butchering it, butchering it. but that idea of trying to bridge that gap and give access to any artist is so important to us. I think because we felt a little outside of this very moneyed theater place when we started. And I mean, still do on some level because it's just not where we come from. So trying to create more access and create more opportunity for people to um, grow and build. I think is the, is the important thing to us.
4: Uh, well, you got to where I was asking really about, about the future and the mad ones and the, and the lab and the road trip. And uh, that's all wonderful, but you haven't mentioned new musical com. Oh, and- funny.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, we made that along We made that along the way. Like as, what, what Kate said, what, you know, what Kate was saying about like, um, like these internet experiments, like, it's not just like literally everything Kate and I have done, like we both have like restless minds, but like very different kinds of restless minds, and so with our energies together like we're we just don't do the same thing twice ever, and that's like a confusing thing for like artists sometimes because we want artists to make a lot of sense where it's like oh I I I understand they make these kinds of shows they make these kinds of plays they tell these kinds yeah. of stories but that's not who Kate is and it's not who I am so instead <laughs> with our powers combined we end up like always coming to things new and 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 going in wildly different directions sometimes following an impulse from Kate or an impulse from me um and yeah New Musical Theater was definitely um, something that came from conversations between us and also from the fact that I had, you know, I had developed these relationships with like Janine and with Jason Brown and with like these Larry O'Keefe and these, all these folks who I looked up to when I was arriving in New York and all those relationships were forged because when i was at like interlocking art school um art like <laughs> shout out to interlocking where people yeah. arted when we were wee babes and all those people um but uh what was i going to say um oh just like people were passing jason's email address around and like and it was like so freaking cool it was like oh my god because like you know like this is new like it's like oh i can we can just like contact these people they're not just this mysterious name on the sheet music and like yeah i've heard if you like email him he'll like send you like like sheet music to things or like send you transcriptions or like answer questions and like he will even come to your production of svanwa which is what we called songs for a new world like i was (laughs) (laughs) like, we all called it svanwa (laughs) (laughs) anyway um (laughs) uh yeah so like there was this sense of like as um as I was watching things that were happening with um like micro communities on the internet in the early 2000s um there was this sense of like what we could start to make and the way we could change those relationships so I started um I started connecting with people um, who loved new musical theater songs on MySpace, literally MySpace, (laughs) and like um, and I was using like some of these like web tools on MySpace to like promote things, and like I was like very into the fact that I could connect with fans around the world who also loved Janine (laughs) Tessori (laughs) <laughs> I'm sorry, it always comes back to Jimmy.
5: <laughs> you. Know, it's also it's really important, I think, to to note that the moment when we decided we needed to fix our problem with uh with uh, like the the genesis of that on some level was Passover, wasn't it? Um, oh was- yeah,
3: so like this all evolved this relationship <laughs> with our fans, where like I gradually just kept doing more and more things and doing more and more things and being like like how like I like I was mailing because like PDFs didn't like freaking exist at this time, so I was mailing like sheet music to anyone who wanted it. Cause I just wanted my songs out there. So like I initially started like getting copies of run away with me to people by literally like mailing from like my college dorm room. Like I was mailing copies of songs in, in the, in the, with the post office weird. Right. Um, but that gradually evolved using PDFs. And like, I, 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 I knew how to do like some HTML and some CSS and some basic programming stuff. So I was able to like cobble together um, BrianLotterMock.com. Which I, you know, swept out from under the nose of the the then mayor of um some town in Iowa. And <laughs> um and yeah, and that eventually evolved to the place where I got a phone call at a Passover Seder. Um, Passover was last night. Um, shout out to um, Jews. And um, and I got a <laughs> I got a phone call during the Seder um, and I like muted it. But then I like kept getting a phone call over and over again. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I like stepped out in the kitchen and I answered it. I was like, what is going on? And it was some person in Texas being like, hi, I'm having trouble like downloading, run away with me or whatever. And like, I really needed for an audition. And I was, and I was like, oh, okay. Well, um, I'm at my Passover Seder, but, like, I can try and do that a little later tonight, and, and, and he was, like, wait, who am I talking to? I was, like, oh, this, this, it's Brian, and, um, and, uh, and, and, and he was, like, so horrified, right? He's, like, I assumed I was talking to, like, you know, some kind of customer service (laughs) person.
1: Who do you think, like,
3: what do you think is happening here? Like,
1: it's just, me um
3: and so that yeah that was the moment where um I was like complaining to like um to Ben Shpasek and like and to um this lovely human Scott Mevis who went to Michigan um and uh yeah and Kate we were all like talking about like how there should be a way to like fix some of our collective woes together I was dating someone who worked for the New York Times at the time and we were like talking about like the changes in media companies and the fact that um, you know Amazon was um, in the mid two thousands, like you know, it was really we we really felt like it could be the end of like news organizations with like what was happening with certain companies if they didn't figure out they hadn't figured out the paywall yet at the New York Times, um, and so like there was this like question of how you monetize com- content online, and we had and we were talking about like inefficient economies and how if you don't fix an inefficient economy yourself someone will come in and they will fix it for you. And you will probably not like how they fix it. Mm -hmm. Napster. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yes. (laughs) And or, and or, you know, so Spotify, you know, had major backing from record labels. Mm -hmm. Hulu had major backing from companies. What we've learned is that like, you know, if you band together with fellow content creators and with you band together, you can create these companies rather than having, you know, Uber come in from the outside and fix your inefficient industry and just, you know, destroy the existing taxi industry, right? Like you, you can try and build, and they had, I think, more success in like India with like fighting Uber because they, you know, they, they were able to keep it out and they were able to like make a partner with partnership with like grab and stuff like the like as time has gone on we found new ways but anyway at the time the thought I had was my goodness if all of the book publishers just got together and all major authors got together did not distribute digitally on Amazon we were talking about how they actually could like hold on to control and we wouldn't see the closures of bookstores across America Mm -hmm. and then we started to talk about um this is with my like then, then girlfriend, like we were talking about like, well, could the same thing happen in like musical theater? Right. Like, it, is it small enough that we could get right. together? And then we, and then with Kate, like we started talking like, well, how many people are we talking about? Like, what would it take to kind of say, okay, this is like a lot of the audition songs you want. Um, and so we were like, well, I mean, we could start with just Benjamin Justin and Joe Iconis and, that would be a pretty good start. Um, and so we started right there um, and we said, well, let's you know have the best royalty rate in the industry. Let's make all the things that it should be if we were like building this from the inside out. And, um, you know, is it like, you know, I don't think we think of like new as being comparable to like Spotify, but you know, it's like, it exists and like it, it works and it's served a purpose. And I think it still does in some ways, you know, music notes is music notes, which is like a huge thing. And I'm glad that music notes exists, but I don't know. We made like a little thing and we make little messy, also, awesome things.
5: I don't know whether or not, this is completely, yeah. Unfounded, but Music Notes, the the royalty rate at Music Notes is is relatively good compared to royalty rates in general. For sure, and, and I wonder. I mean, we existed when that happened.
3: I don't know whether or not
5: that had any impact. I don't know,
3: but let's definitely take credit for that. Let's say
5: that we did. But then how freaking
3: weird. So then Sean Flavin, who was like my diner buddy, where I was just like being like, oh my God, what was it like? You know, doing copy work for Stephen Sondheim. Um, But then Sean goes on to be the head of like the largest music conglomerate in the world. And then there I am like representing newmusicaltheater.com with Sean. And then Sean's looking at me like, what is going on here? (laughs) Um, but yeah, like it was, a, it was a little bit, it's been a little bit of a ride. It's like, it, we pretty much just have it in maintenance mode right now, but it like, you know, continues to exist. There was like, I remember being like on a, on the, at the Jersey shore when we launched like Dogfight, that was an off-Broadway show that Benjamin Justin did. And like, and it like crashed all the servers and crashed the whole site. that was fun. <laughs> like there were, there were like some really cool things along the way, but like, I now like. It drives me nuts. Like, I was talking to, like, Shakina Nathak, like, like years and years ago about, like, changing all, like, the language on the site. Like, because, I mean, it talks about, like, male songs and female songs and, like, female keys and all this stuff. And it's, like, that's, like, it, it does, there, there are things that suck about being, like, a little, tiny, barely functional Little yeah. website where it's like, yeah, no, of course we'd love to completely overhaul the site and all of the backend stuff and everything. And of course we can't afford to do that. Um, which is shitty. Like it's terrible. Um, and I still wish that there were things about, like, I do wish that I could just like, as someone who I think is good at visualizing what should exist before it exists, I do wish that I could just say to people here, make this, um, and not have to actually make it myself, um, especially as someone who doesn't have the money to do so. Um, but yeah. Yeah, um, it comes back
5: to that lack yeah. of trust, trust fund again.
3: Yeah. <laughs> again, to anyone out there thinking about whether you should or should not have a trust fund, definitely, I would say go. Get
5: for- <laughs> yourself a trust fund. <laughs> do it.
4: But <laughs> uh, those words of wisdom will wrap up for this morning.
5: <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs>
4: Bree and Kate, thank you so much for spending time with us on Broadway Radio. We're really wonderful talking with you. And uh, we'll have links to all of your uh, stuff, uh, Spotify, YouTube, your website, Newmusicaltheater.com, All of that stuff's in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, please come back when, you're, uh, when, when uh, Justice kicks off.
5: <laughs> Great.
4: Maybe have the three of you on.
5: That would be so much fun.
4: Crash our servers. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so Bye. much. Thanks so
5: much for having
4: us. All right. Bye. Bye.
5: Meanwhile, there's so many
0: things that I don't understand. I don't know why I tremble when you reach for my hand. I didn't know how to love until you swept me.
4: Okay, so Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia?
1: He was a vaudevillian who appeared in four musicals nearly 100 years ago. Hassard Short's Rich Review, Gay Paris, Piggy, and Cross My Heart. His wife's name will remind you of a character in a Tony-winning 60s musical that became a high-grossing film and TV movie. Well, Eddie Conrad was the vaudevillian I had in mind. His wife was named Birdie. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> Bertie Conrad, which I guess is the way Conrad Bertie heard his name called in roll calls in school or in the army. But <laughs> this information came courtesy of Trip Phillips, one of Broadway's most valuable production stage managers, who's writing a book on out-of-town closings and asked me to read it for feedback. While reading, I was stunned to see that there was a Bertie Conrad. <laughs> so apparently it was Tony Janicki, who was the first to get it, followed by Josh Israel, Brigadood, Joanna Abisi, Ingrid Gammerman. Jack Leshner, and Sean Logan. This week's question. They've been good friends for 60 years or so, although they made their Broadway debuts before getting to really know the other. After appearing in three TV specials together, one opened in an off-Broadway musical, and when the show moved to Broadway, was succeeded by the other one. Who are they? Okay.
4: If you know the answer to that, email us at trivia at com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? This
2: week's musical moment is a tribute to Jessica Walter, um, who just very recently died on March 24th. And I uh, have to say, I'm only familiar with a fraction of her really lengthy and, and wonderful career her broadway credits alone are kind of fascinating in 1960 she was a replacement in advise and consent uh and then in 1962 uh, she was in a um a show called nightlife 1963 photo finish and 1964 a severed head then she had uh, a very lengthy hiatus and was not back on Broadway until 1988 in Neil Simon's Rumors, uh, in which she appeared with her husband, Ron Liebman. And um, first of all, I don't, I don't know how many of you know Rumors. It, It was certainly not the most successful of Simon's plays, but I thought it was beyond hilarious, and I thought so again when I saw it in a community theater production
1: which it 's had a million of it is it 's amazing to me how many productions that gets in community theater
2: i think you 've mentioned that, and i 'm not surprised because mm-hmm. it 's hysterical and also it 's got a good it 's good as far as cast size yeah, and, and other things like that uh, so anyway i 'm so glad I saw that, and that was one of the only two times that I was lucky enough to see Jessica Walter on stage the other time being her very small role of Evangeline Harcourt in the 2011 uh, Broadway revival of Anything Goes. But she had a decades long career in film and TV uh, and and theater outside of broadway countless countless um performances uh and uh, our musical moment is from a 1968 tv production of kiss me kate um it's so interesting uh jessica walter was so multi-talented that she sang very very well and yet didn't focus on a musical theater career uh, by any means uh but in that production she played lois lane and um i I, james i guess you're too young peter did you see that production Mm -mm. Uh, it seems from uh the 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 cast album quote unquote which of course it really is a studio cast album but uh for that production was was put on cd not too many years ago and i have it and um it seems like maybe they updated the action to the '60s because uh, if you hear the arrangement of <laughs> "Always True you to My fashion, fashion," yeah, yeah, you'll you'll know why I say that. Um, uh, I don't love the the arrangement, but I thought sure. it, it was interesting, and I and, and it is a showcase for Jessica, so I thought we would include it. Also, uh, this is so fascinating to me. Listen to how um, now this is TV in the 1960s, in the late '60s, they still have to be careful um, with censorship, even with innuendos uh, and even, you know, with just things that would, we wouldn't even think twice about today. So listen when you, when you hear this. Listen to what they did. To, the original lyric was, um, let, now let me make sure I get this right. There's an oil man known as Tex who is keen to give me checks, and his checks, I fear, mean that sex is here to stay. Listen to what they did to that line in this in this recording, and it's really interesting. But also, enjoy it for the really wonderful performance and, and excellent, excellent singing voice of the late Jessica Walter.
4: That's wonderful. Okay, so uh, just let everybody know that next week we have Marsha Milgram Dodge coming on to mm. talk with us. So, uh... Check that out. Come join us and listen to us live if you would like. Uh, and so, on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye bye. Bye. Bye.
0: I'm just mad for you, and I'll always be, but naturally. <laughs> If a custom-tailored vet Asks me out for something wet When the vet begins to pet I cry hooray But I'm always true to you, darling, in my fashion Yes, I'm always true to you, darling, in my way I've been asked to have a meal By a big Tycoon in steel. If the meal includes a deal, accept, I may. But I'm always true to you, darling, in my fashion. Yes, I'm always true to you, darling, in my way. There's a madman known as Mac, who is planning to attack. If his mad attack means a Cadillac of okay. K- Yes, I'm always true to you, darling, in my way. There's an oil man known as Tex, who is keen to give me checks. But his checks, I feel mean that Tex is here to stay. But I'm always true to you, darling, in my fashion. Yes, I'm always true to you, darling, in my way. Mr. Harris, Pluto who wants to give my cheek a pat, if a Harris pat means a Paris hat, red, red. oh la, major sweet, to Jean Fidel, darling, in my fashion, major sweet, to Jean Fidel.